We lived two years under the Trump administration, <clears throat> two months since an historic blue wave shifted the power balance in Washington, and two weeks since the government was taken hostage by a small band of white supremacists. This is the third January in a row I've been up here in the pulpit talking about how to live in these difficult times, times that have been infinitely worse than we imagined, so much more cruel, more corrupt and depraved. Hundreds of thousands of people like you and me have spent these past two years in the trenches, marching, rallying, calling, writing, canvassing, getting arrested. I've gained weight. They call it the Trump 10. <laughs> and in every other respect, I've become sort of two-dimensional in that all I can think about is marching and canvassing and calling. At parties, I'm a crashing bore. But I do what I do because I see what's happening and I have kids. And I cannot rest until I feel like I'm doing something to make the world a better place. The intensity of our public life has taken a toll, and it's natural to long for an easier, softer way of life. But when everything we hold dear is on the line, and the path forward is lined with fear and anger, being overwhelmed is a luxury we can't afford. We have to find new ways of being and doing. It's going to take a ton of work. And in all honesty, the struggle will never end. But we know what to do. Because this two-year period we've been through, with Charlottesville and Brett Kavanaugh and children in cages dying on the border, and corruption and Russian interference and relentless assaults on the rule of law, etc., this two-year period has also been an intense graduate program in how things work. It's not that things suddenly got awful. It's that they got so fantastically awful that we have no choice but to pay attention. Here's what I've learned. One, that we have to work with our systems of government as they really are, not as we wish they were. Two, that while some of us are more privileged than others, each of us is diminished in some way by systemic oppression. And three, that in order to create the world we want, we must have power. So let's take these lessons one at a time. Let's start with a reality check on this thing we call American democracy. True or false? Public policy is made in public by the public, for the benefit of the public. Right? It's not like they taught us in school. Our elected officials are supposed to represent all their constituents, including the most vulnerable, but most of them don't. They represent their donors and their ideology in that order. So we're dreaming, if, it's a th if we think it's enough to vote, every two years or even every four years. We are dreaming. Frederick Douglass knew better 150 years ago. The whole history of the progress of human liberty shows that all concessions 
yet made to her august claims, have been born of earnest struggle. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. <clears throat> These are not normal times, and the usual, even a little bit more than the usual, just doesn't cut it. The phone calls are great, especially if 10,000 people make them. The canvassing is great, especially if you can knock on every door in the known universe. The rallies are great too, especially if a lot of people show up and you get press coverage. But one rally won't make much of a difference if that's all there is. <clears throat> you know that thing they say about how prayer changes things? I frankly don't believe that. I believe that prayer changes people and people change things. And that's how I think about acts of resistance. It's not so much that a rally itself makes a difference, but showing up at a rally makes it easier to show up at the next rally and to make the next phone call and so on. Pretty soon you're an activist and the person next to you is running for a school board. So yes, rally. Yes, vote. Yes, call your elected representatives. Not just you, but everyone you know. Do it in numbers and do it every day and get a seat at the damn table. Because nothing bends toward justice unless we make it so. <clears throat> the second big thing I've learned in this two-year grad program is that every one of us is vulnerable, no matter how privileged we are. Most of, in this, most of us in this room have the extraordinary good fortune of having a roof over our heads. We have indoor plumbing and a reasonable certainty of where our next meal is coming from. Many of us don't have to fear that although we might be having a bad day, the color of our skin or our citizenship status won't make it worse. Some of us even have health insurance, though we might have a wicked deductible. We may be privileged, but none of us can escape being diminished by systemic oppression. I mean systems so deep and wide and so tightly woven into the fabric of our lives, we don't even know they're there. We're diminished by racism, the sucking chest wound of our body politic. It stains every policy, every neighborhood and highway, every budget, every breath we take. It limits the quality of education and healthcare available to people of color, limits their opportunities, their horizons, their life expectancy. It hurts white people too, by alienating them from their brethren and blinding them to their 